The Guardian. Hello, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the May edition of the multi-award-winning Islamophonic. Yes, we've picked up a Sony for our efforts. It wasn't the colour I wanted, but it's better than a poke in the eye with a miswark. And I did beat Mark Ronson, who got nothing. This month, as we grind the axe into the axis of evil, we say hello to the British Muslims for secular democracy. We talk about Islamaglama and we meet Muslims who aren't Muslims but are, but no, but yeah, but no. In the studio, we have a dynamic duo from the Islam channel. We have the chief executive, Muhammad Ali, and the producer, Abra Hussain. Salaam alaikum to you both. Alaikum salaam. Now, I've just won a Sony. Abra, if you could win anything, what would it be? Probably at the moment an Apple iPhone because uh, that's what I really need at the moment. And what about you, Mohammed? What would you like to win? One million pounds. How would you do that? Because playing the lottery is haram, isn't it? Yeah. I wish I can, I can win one, one million pounds. What would you do with the money? Put it in Islam channel. Oh, there you, you see. Go. Now, I wouldn't say I go to the ends of the earth for this programme, but I think Zone 4 in London is far enough. Morden is the unlikely global headquarter for a movement that has been described as deviant, heretical and blasphemous. No, it's not Al-Qaeda or Hizbut Tahrir. It's the Ahmadis. My name is Muhammad Nasser Khan. I am the Vice President of the United Kingdom Association of the Ahmadi Muslim Association. And we are basically walking around a complex here, which is the largest mosque in Europe. And I was the project director for the complex here. It's quite fancy looking and modern for a mosque, isn't it? Yes. We've tried to blend as much. I mean, there is, there is no such thing as a set thing for a mosque because, you know, the first mosque in the world is, is just a cube. And of course, because it was an existing building, it was a factory, we've had to adapt the factory for our community use. So here, for example, you see the loading bay. Yeah. And the loading bay has now been turned into a nice little hall. And, of course, it houses all our offices, gymnasium, library. Have you got a gym? Yes, we've got a gym here. Well, two days a week, the ladies use it. Yeah. And then uh, we have children's sessions here. Yeah. And you have your own TV studio? We have studios there. And Why this do is you have main... your own TV studio? Because we run a 24-hour, seven-days-a-week television station. What kind of programmes do you have? Religious, secular. Every sermon is translated in eight languages simultaneously. Really? So from today, from here, you will yeah. hear the sermon. And he'll be delivering in Urdu, but it'll be translated in all these cubicles. Well, thank you for inviting me to have a look around your mosque. I'm very impressed. It's very modern, very clean, and it has lots of things that you don't normally find in mosques, like underfloor heating and a creche and, you know, a decent-sized space for women to pray in. We were talking earlier about all the similarities that you have. You follow the same prayer timetable, it's the same kalma. You know, you don't sort of deviate from the standard form of salah that Sunni Muslims pray but yet you are different. Can you explain what the difference is? The difference really comes from our belief that the Imam Mahdi and the Messiah was in the form of this man called Ghulam Mirza Ahmed. Now, there's nothing unusual about believing that there is going to be the return of a Mahdi. All the Muslims believe there will be an Imam Mahdi and Messiah, the promised Messiah will come. The only difference is that we believe this man in 1889 formed a community, said, I am the Messiah and God has sent me as the Messiah onto the world, and those that accepted him are here today in this mosque, and many of them are millions of followers around the world. But those that didn't consider him a heretic, similar to, I suppose, the advent of the first Messiah, when Jesus came and said to the Jews, I am sent as a Messiah. 
and they rejected him and uh, persecuted him until they tried to crucify him. Uh, that's we believe is is what happens to all prophets of God that they are persecuted, and that's uh, what's happening to our community around the world. You've just talked about persecution. You've been banned in Pakistan. I think it was Zia Al Haq who outlawed you in 1984, and there's a lot of trouble in Indonesia as well. Mosques are being burned and. You know, followers are being persecuted and attacked. Unfortunately, it's the same people that uh, create havoc for Muslims around the world. The leaders of some of the communities around the world are extremist in their views, intolerant in what they believe that other people should have. They should follow Islam, and because we don't fall into their their thinking of of Islam, suddenly we are becoming targets for for those people. Why are you perceived as being heretics? Because to believe that there is a prophet after Muhammad peace be upon him is, for many people, it's a very difficult thing to swallow. The Holy Prophet himself said the Messiah will come, and when he comes, you should go and greet him. So there's nothing wrong in that belief. The only difference is that they think this will be Jesus returning as the Messiah. This is what most mainstream Muslims believe. And when he returns, because he's already a prophet, we can accept him as a prophet after Muhammad peace be upon him. But really, it was somebody in the spirit of Jesus that would come, not him in person, because the Quran tells us when the prophet dies or any human dies, they don't come back. So we know that Jesus is dead and he's not coming back. But his spirit and his teachings and the way he practiced his faith is is what this new Messiah will reflect and re- represent. So we believe that this man is a prophet, although he's just a man, but he is a prophet, and uh, they find it difficult to accept that, and therefore they do consider us heretics because of that one fundamental point that we believe that he has to be a prophet in order to be a Messiah. In terms of the finality of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, so accepting him as the last prophet, that's fairly crucial, though, isn't it? It's a it's a last law-bearing prophet. There's no Sharia after Holy Prophet has brought the Quran. There's no law. There's no new religion. The religion is the same. The law is the same. It's the Messiah that's teaching us back to the purity of Islam. There's nothing new in his in his teachings. He's just taking us back to the understanding of things like jihad, women's rights in Islam, how to behave with your neighbor, how to show love, kindness, and that extremism and that intolerance that most of the Imams are showing around the world. The, so, the so-called ulama are showing. That's not the leadership that the Holy Prophet ﷺ wanted. He wanted that love to, to cross, and this is what the Messiah is teaching us. How will he come back then? He's been and gone. He's, he's been, given us his teachings, given us his... He wrote 80 books in the time that he was in this world. He created lots and lots of examples of how you should behave with your neighbours, your wife. It teaches a code of conduct with everything that we do. And therefore, that teaching is there for all times. And he's taught us how to understand the Qur'an in its deepest way. And the purity of the, of the faith of Islam is, is so beautiful. It's nothing to be feared, nothing for other people to fear. It's, they should embrace it. What kind of links do you have with other Muslim organisations and mosques? And are those gestures reciprocated, shall we say? I think it's one-way traffic, I'm afraid. We've tried our very best to involve our Muslim brothers in everything that we do. Some, of course, in, on an individual basis, we have very good relationships with lots of other Muslim groups. But as a community, you know, we have problems. You know, They don't want to be seen to be associated with us in case some of the extremist leaders start you know, identifying them and targeting them in the same way. Have you had any trouble? In the UK, fortunately, no. It's, it's covert. If there is animosity, it doesn't come out and they can't do it in the same way. We, fortunately, we're in Britain, we're in a free country. and You, know, you can't just go and you know, show that kind of aggression towards anyone. But, of course, in other parts of the world, in Pakistan, as you know, it's a three-year sentence just to wear the kalma as, a, as an Ahmadi. If you wear a kalma or recite the Quran or if you 
if you if you say salam even it's a three-year prison sentence so it's a ridiculous state of affairs in many countries of the world and of course we can't go for hajj which we all want to do you can't go for hajj no, we're banned from saudi Arabia. i'm not being funny but how do they know that you're a mahdi well they ask in the form when you apply they ask whether you're an ahmadi muslim and if you are your, your visa will be rejected why don't you just lie how can you go to Hajj for a pure purpose, a beautiful purpose, and you're going to cleanse your soul, and you're going the, starting the whole journey with a lie? No, 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 because what you do is, you go there, you cleanse your soul, you ask for forgiveness for lying on your form, and then you come back, job done. In fact, many Muslims, what they just put is Muslim. They, are, they don't even answer the question, they just put the word Muslim, and many of our people have gone, and they do go. Because I imagine that doing, you know, sort of lying on your form, it's a bit like paying for Hajj on a credit card. Yeah. Exactly, yes, yes. Which is, again, it goes against the principles of, and, and ethics of, of Hajj. I mean, you just said that it was one-way traffic. What about links with the government and local authorities? Are you represented on any kind of Muslim Council of Britain? Does the Home Office, do they ever come to you and say, can you sit on this panel, can you sit on this task force? Locally, we have a lot of respect of the police. We have we have sit on various police consultative committees. We invite the police here. We invite all the dignitaries from various parts of government to come to our, our mosque and see what we're about and what we do and we want to help in every way we can but unfortunately because we are not uh, in large numbers in the UK we don't have councillors and wards we don't have MPs that are, that are supported by the local community therefore we don't have to carry that clout that we would need in order to be involved in, in decision making certainly not on the Muslim Council of Britain they don't consider us a mosque so how would they put us on that council and we're not really uh, considered important enough by the other ministries. I think that's the problem. It doesn't carry that kind of weight. Abra, you made a programme called Model Mosque. The Amdis have got quite a fancy building. It's got yeah, a I've nice library. And, I've seen you that know, mosque in uh, Modern. It is a very, very nice mosque. It, it looks a, a bit like the White House, don't you think? Have you seen the White House recently? <laughs> it doesn't look like the White House to me. I mean, was that building ever a contender? It wasn't really because... Obviously, we were making a show that was to do with mainstream Islam and mainstream mosques um, within traditional Islam, and it wasn't something, you know, respect to Amdis, they've got their own separate religion, but it's not Islam as the majority of Muslims around the world would understand it. Mohammed, do Muslims have the right to decide who is Muslim and who isn't? Sure. If Muslims, they don't decide who is Muslim, who is not Muslim, who would decide? If the British people are the ones who decide who is British, who is not British, mm. Christians, they decide who is Christian, who is not a Christian. Mm. So, of course, but for them to be Muslims, they are not Muslims, as simple as that. What would it take for them to become Muslim? Well, there are fundamentals, uh, tenets of the, of the belief, and those fundamentals, we have to believe that God is one. Mm. If someone says God is two, are two, or... God got married or something, mm. we are not going to accept him as a Muslim. And the second one, you have to accept that Muhammad is the last yeah. prophet. And in fact, even for Jesus, we don't believe he died. We believe he ascended to heaven. Mm. So he said, Jesus died and gone. Uh, we don't believe that Jesus died and gone. And with that only, they cannot be considered as Muslims. So they would have to renounce their beliefs effectively? Well, it's up to them. I'm not going to tell them what to do. I, I'm just giving very simple, agreed-upon definition by all Muslims worldwide. We have to believe, it is a must to believe that Muhammad is the last and final and seal of the prophets. Abra, there aren't that many of them. I think there's only 20,000 in Britain. And I'm not sure how many there are in Pakistan. I think there's only about 200,000 in Indonesia. Okay. But they've been banned in Pakistan since 1984. They've been banned in Bangladesh. And in Indonesia, it looks like, you know, there could be civil war breaking out over a very, very small group of people. Why do you think they pose such a threat? 
I mean, I don't know too much about the history of this particular group, but I know even from from listening to the brother then, I mean, he's a very smooth brother and he's very, like, you know, persuasive in a way. I think they could be seen as a group that is trying to recruit more people towards their side of the faith, and that's why there's so much tension if they're trying to say to people, look, this is the new way, and especially if they're doing that under the guise of, you know, opening mosques and then say normal people or people who want to convert to Islam that Mm. they see as traditional Islam but are going there and then being taught which is effectively a different religion i think they should be very very clear in what their actual beliefs are mm. and i think once that is clear i don't see that there's any problem with them i mean everyone's free to practice their own religion but i think that's why people dislike the way that the marketing machine works with the amethyst i think because you described it as a separate religion yeah i think it's a separate religion mm. yeah i think there's not just obviously there's the seal of the prophethood which is the main thing you, you just can't get around that in mm. any way and i think the other thing is that they're also saying that you know this guy transcends all the other prophets not only is he a prophet coming after he's prophet like Muhammad, a super prophet he's like a super prophet yeah be aware of statistics i don't believe they have two hundred thousand in indonesia no. no way for them to be near that mark and uh, what they do when they go and open places of worship and they call it mosques ordinary people they come but mm. when ordinary people they come it doesn't mean they belong to that particular sect mm. i think they are a sect without any without any future because it contradicts in itself and in fact now there are two groups they split in two and i think the other group those maybe they stand a, a realistic chance mm. to join the muslim ummah again they can be free to practice whatever they want to practice that's up to them but it's the fact that they're calling themselves muslim yes if they call themselves something completely different yes, because here they can be charged with the trying to damage the muslim religion mm. that's what people are upset with them those people are what are they seeking are seeking to change and dilute the muslim religion and this is why people they want to stop them you can't even call it a mosque you can't what call is, it a mosque. it's a building it's shrine it's, it's a place shrine. they can worship whatever yeah. they want to worship but a mosque is, is the place of worship of mm. muslims we can't call our mosques a church and we can't call a church a, a mosque mo- a mosque okay so When you are inventing in your religion, go and invent a new weddings, a new Sharia, and you everything. Bring everything new, but you come to the Islamic religion and you want to deviate. That is not going to be acceptable. Because when you see a Muslim, you make me associated to you. I can't be associated mm. to you. Sorry, it's it's my right, and your right starts finishes when my right if starts. They, if, they, if they said salam alaikum to you, would you say salam alaikum back? Yeah, I say salam alaikum okay. to everyone. Yeah, okay. I say I say even to people I consider as being non-Muslims. I say salam. Yeah. It's no problem. Salam is is a statement that we have no problem with each other. So it's no problem even even Islamically to say salam to non-Muslims. Yeah, that's our way of greeting people. Abra, do you think Muslims can live with difference broadly? Kind of going beyond the Amdi thing. Do you think we can live with difference when yeah. people have different belief systems, different practices? Yeah, of course. I think there's there's a lot of tolerance, especially in the UK. It's great to live in the UK because so many religions are flourishing here mm. and everyone's getting on side by side. I mean, we're organising, you know, so many interfaith initiatives at the moment. It's wonderful to see how they're all coming together. So I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of scope for, for different religions to respect each other and, and to embrace diversity and, and to respect each other's religions as well. This month, the BBC is showing a five-part series that promises to penetrate the hidden and often closed world of Muslim women. It's primetime on BBC Two, and the blurb says, It will shock and surprise with its combination of personal grooming and politics. Women in Black takes us to Yemen, Dubai, Egypt, Holland and the UK. Here's a clip. We Muslim women now make up 10% of the population of the entire world. Sometimes it feels as if the rest of you see us as shapeless black blobs.
where you've seen a veil before, tonight I'll show you what lies beneath. We are the Women in Black. I'm doing something hundreds of Muslim women do every day as they travel from west to east. I'm halfway home and it's time for my Yemeni Muslim makeover. Off with my jeans and on with the long skirt. Got to smooth my hair. Curly locks are a big no-no. You can never have enough sparkle in Yemen. Once I've got my abaya and shela on, I feel differently about my body. I feel great. Feminine, sensual. This covers a multitude of sins. So if you're having a fat day, it's perfect. And in my case, it's really taking care of my post-flight hair. Anyone would look good in this. I'm glad this flight takes hours. The western part of me is slipping to the back of my mind. And my Arab side is really coming through. After nine hours, I arrive in Aden, South Yemen. And my family are waiting. This is my cousin, Badur. Badur is one of my best friends. She spends most of her time thinking about appearance, hers and other people's. This is Imad, our family driver. We're an upper-middle-class family by Yemeni standards, wealthy enough to have a driver, but Yemen's the poorest country in the Middle East. I'll be staying at my uncle's house, but I won't see much of him. Women and men live separately, but under the same roof. Now for some Muslim etiquette. Through there is the men's part of the house. I'm not bothered about that. This is the woman's part. Now that I'm here, I can take my veil off. I wouldn't take it off outside because there are men there. Apart from women, I can only take my veil off in front of my husband and male relations. This is my aunt that was Amani Zain, the presenter from the new BBC series Women in Black. Mohammed, we just heard a clip of the first episode there. It's got a very different approach to the subject of Muslim women and their lives. It's almost all about beauty treatments and hair straightening and going shopping and fashion and makeup. It sounds to me, I don't, I don't follow those kind of programs, but from what I've seen is she's setting up the scene that making Muslim women as being something very strange and like a discovery journey. That tells a lot. It tells that the Muslim woman is something strange to our world today. And that is not a reality. What is wrong with the Muslim? She doesn't want to take off her clothes in front of non-close relatives. And that's very normal. It, it depends really on what level of clothes you take off. Some people, they below the knees. Mm. The, the other people are just uh, mini skirts and so on. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And uh, being in segregated places in some places, if you go to old schools in London, you see girls' gate and boys' gate and so on. And it, it was the practice everywhere until after Second World War when we had the a new liberal political thought. I believe that is a temporary phenomenon where people, they go back to, to normal. Of course, in our Muslim history, we had, before the West, we, ha- we had women who are heads of states. Mm. But being a head of state or being... A, involved in everyday life it doesn't mean really you have to be half naked that's the philosophy of islam abra what do you think 
To be honest, I thought it looked nice. It looked very well shot and everything. It's very, very glossy. It's It's very kind of slick. It's well put together and I like the graphics at the beginning as well. But to me, it does look slightly contrived, you know, almost... I don't want to use the word acted, but specifically the very first scene on the plane. I mean, who gets on a plane wearing clothes and then gets changed into different clothes? If you're going to go on this journey, you'd, you'll do it at the airport or at home. I don't think you'll get on the plane and then change halfway through. So I think that was just a point making, you know, saying that, OK, we're going for this big transition. But really, I don't think it's there. I think the majority of women, if they, even if they do wear Western clothes in the UK, are going to get changed into their, their, yeah. their Arab garb before they get on that plane. So I think that was just for the cameras and, and, and it kind of showed. Apart from that, I think, you know, she's, she's a very good host. She looks very bubbly and everything and I'm sure she can give us a good insight but the other thing is you know she said herself she's like uh, upper middle class mm. so what percentage of the population in Yemen is she actually showing us I mean she's saying oh come I'll show you like how it really is but that's not how it really is for the majority of people in Yemen and probably the way her lifestyle is probably as alien to those people in Yemen as yeah. it is to, to the people who are watching it on TV. I was going to say it's completely alien to yeah. me I'm looking there thinking, she's got a driver yeah, exactly. she's got a driver yeah. I mean she mentions that Yemen is one of the poorest countries in the world but that's it and she doesn't go back to it. Yeah, it seems like much more fun and sort of just uh, sort of superficial on the top, scratching on the surface uh, kind of show. I mean, I haven't seen the rest of it, but um, I have read the synopsis and it seems like she's going to go really in-depth and everything, but she's yeah. trying to show us something that Western audiences will react to. And, and, you know, yeah, that will be spectacular. She's not trying to show us the reality because, in effect, that might be a little bit boring yeah. for, for prime time. She wants to enforce a very distorted picture about women in Islam. Mm. The Observer did an article only a few days ago, in fact, and they said that 70% of women in the Yemen are illiterate, one in five die in childbirth, and most are married sort of in their early teens. So clearly hers is not the norm. Her no, situation and her family's situation is not the norm. I mean, I've seen episode one, I've seen episode two as well, where she goes to Dubai, and the social and political problems affecting women aren't mentioned at all. I mean, when she's driving around in Dubai with a Formula One racing driver who's female, and she's whizzing around and they're reaching speeds of 140 miles an hour, and she says, oh, this is amazing, and it's even more amazing when you consider that they can't even drive in Saudi Arabia. Ha, ha, ha. But again, she doesn't go back to it. When she mentioned the poverty levels in Yemen, she just mentioned it in one line and that was it and just moved on very quickly. Do you think there needs to be balance or do you think that what she's doing is is really counterintuitive to everything we've seen before about... I think it really is counterintuitive. I mean, I'm sure it's an entertaining program, mm. but it should be seen as that as an entertainment factor. I'm sure that their researchers went out there and, 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 and looked hard and long for people who would be, you know, in exceptional circumstances mm. who they can promote on this show. Mm. Um, but it's not going to give the impression that's the norm. And also the timing of it. I mean, it's just kind of funny. It's because EastEnders. It's EastEnders. But do you know what? It coincides with the uh, the premiere a few days ago of the uh, famous Channel 4 sitcom, Sex in the City. It, yeah. And, you know, it's got that kind of like New York, kind of feel to it which they're trying to apply to mm. Arabia and uh, Muslim women there I don't think it's it's really the reality at all And finally not a week goes by without the launch of a new Muslim group if I had a cake for every launch I've been to since starting this podcast I'd be a very fat woman This month I went to hear what the British Muslims for Secular Democracy had to say for themselves Well my name is Nasreen Rahman and I'm a co-founder of uh, British Muslims for Secular Democracy And we are here at the Royal Society of Arts today with our first debate. Why do we need a group such as yours? I think that for many years we have sat back, particularly since the Salman Rushdie crisis, that we felt 
ethnic women, Muslims without beards, and reasonable Muslims, the majority of us, simply did not make good copy. We had no voice, and it was when only a fringe was burning the satanic verses in Bradford or raving about something or the other, they got the spotlight. And we felt, hello, you know, we are Muslims too, and we feel that the majority of Muslims that we meet from all over the world are really like us. They're like everybody else. They're concerned about families, getting their children on to careers, etc. You know, they're not about burning books. And then that case happened about the young girl from Luton. And we suddenly had the Court of Appeal telling us that it was all right for her to wear Muslim dress. Now, what is Muslim dress? You are a Muslim girl standing here wearing jeans. I'm in a shalwar kameez. Somebody else might be wearing a sari. And I was horrified. And I said... What is this? I mean, here is the Court of Appeal now telling us that there is some th such thing as Muslim dress. I'm delighted that the ruling was overturned in the Lords. But I rang Yasmin up. I said, Yasmin, I'm just so depressed and I'm so angry. And we sat and we discussed something and we said, we have to do something and shout and shout till we're heard that we are like other people. We are like other communities. We are varied. We are as nuanced as the Christians, the Jews, the Hindus, or anybody else. We're not a monolithic community which is represented by people who burn books or people who are calling out for jihad, etc. So that's why we're here. We want to shed light on the plurality, the diversity, indeed the dignity, the beauty of Islam. We're here for the launch, so there will be a debate, there will be discussion. What other kind of activities will there be in the future? We've started off very slowly because we wanted to get it absolutely right legally and we wanted to get our funding into place and we didn't just want to take money from any corners. So we've been slow in starting off, but you'll see that we'll have a very vibrant debate and future program, which is going to include workshops, lectures, publications, arts events, and many other things. And we want to build bridges and partnerships with organizations in Britain first, and then in Europe and internationally. Now, I get lots of emails from different groups, and I read the headlines, and I read news stories. And it's part of my job to kind of know what people think about Muslims in Britain. And I get the feeling that Muslims are not very popular in this country. Why do you think that is? I think the media is to blame for part of it. And I think that our own communities have to take some responsibility as well. I'd like to say one thing, that there is no such thing as a monolithic Muslim community in Britain. We are as varied, as fractured, as nuanced as any other community. Now, the point is that I think historically the British have seen South Asians in religious communities, Hindus and Muslims, and I think they use that template here as well. And I think that with the rise of radical Islam, which is completely associated with the Afghan war and America's jihad against the Russians. You see another debate that is going on about the clash of civilizations. In that also, it's Islam against the West and the rest. That again is a joke because the debate is polarized. I do think that many people in mosque communities, I think that some of the mosques are doing very good work, but I think in certain mosque communities, the mosques have been used, unfortunately and sadly, to give out 
messages of hatred towards, say, white British people. And I think that there is a problem with that. But I think that the roots of Islamophobia are very, very deep in this country. And what has happened is that the Rushdi affair and the subsequent decades have brought that Islamophobia to the fore. I think there's a deep phobia in Europe against Muslims. And current climate, the geopolitical climate, has brought that to the fore. And yes, there is a distrust of Muslims. Yes, there's increased racism against Muslims. I can see that when I'm in a shalwar kameez and I go out, I've been getting a lot of hate abuse, which I don't get when I'm wearing a sari, which is very interesting. There is also a trend for people to identify themselves as Muslim first, particularly in the younger generation. So, for example, they're not wearing shalwar kameezes, they're more likely to wear abayas and they're more likely to wear hijabs and say they're mother's generation. Mm-hmm. By marking out their identity first and foremost in religious terms, do you think that also creates separation? I'll tell you something very interesting. The first people that I saw wearing strange dress, abaya-like, were the nuns who taught me in Presentation Convent, Pindi. Uh, They did a very good job of teaching us. They were very dedicated. They dressed differently. And even in summer, they wore those billowing things and, you know, hot. But we accepted that they were different, okay? We were going around in shalwar kameezes and things earlier on as well. So if somebody is wearing an abaya, why should it bother another person that they're wearing it? But I think the important question to ask is that why are these young girls now feeling that they need to dress differently? And I think that this is a debate that we have to have within the community because I think, sadly, there's a kind of erosion of local cultures. And it's sad to see everybody, you know, sort of wearing a long sort of slip kind of a thing. All those wonderful different kinds of shalwar kameezes and dupattas and the colors and the designs that we had in our clothes. We don't want to lose them, you know, all the cultural aspect of it. But I think that people should have the right to dress up the way they like, unless and until it becomes threatening to other members of the community. There are some young women or older women who've been covering themselves with the niqab and hiding their faces. This is my position. I don't think it's BMSD's position, but it's certainly my position that if you're in a public place and you're doing a job in a public place, then the public have the right to see who they are interacting with. And dress is a very personal thing. But I think that when there is pressure from a community, either from within the home or from outside, and the pressure can be of two types. One can be your family members telling you that you have to dress in a particular way. But sometimes it's also a way of showing your individuality and that you want to be defiant and say, yes, I'm a Muslim. You know, I am going to wear this so that everybody knows and there's no doubt in anybody's mind. And I think that, yes, there are women's groups who are sort of preaching that there is some such thing as women's dress in Islam, which is the abaya and things, which is absolutely false because the Quran does not describe any dress. It talks about modesty, but it does not talk about dress. And the interesting thing is that the Hadith, which says that when the women went to the Prophet, and said that, you know, people spotted us and said things to us. He said that, you know, don't be conspicuous. So I would argue that in this society, 
if you're wearing an abaya, you're actually being conspicuous and drawing attention to yourself. But I think that people should have the right to wear what they want to wear. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is why are they doing it and where is that pressure coming from and what is the motivation? In the studio, we still have the chief executive of the Islam Channel, Muhammad Ali, and producer-presenter, Abra Hussain. Abra, which is your favourite Muslim organisation? I've got... You know, it's a good point that you Islam made... There are, well, obviously, Islam Channel, because I'm here with my CEO here. But the, the thing is, there is so many groups, and they are multiplying so quickly. And, you know, I really think that with so many groups, they're actually just getting weaker, because when there's so many of them out there, it's mm. like, you know, there's so much different opinions coming through, and I'm not sure that it's actually good for the Muslim community having so many groups spring up all the time. Then again, she described a lot of problems there. I mean, she, you know, I actually agree with some of her aims. She's trying to bring Muslims into the mainstream, trying mm. to make them more part of British society. Okay, it's fair enough. She didn't really describe very many solutions, which I'd be interested to hear what kind of solutions they've got. I mean, she described the problems in the mosques. I mean, as you know, uh, Islam Channel, we we form, initiated the uh, the campaign for model mosque exactly for the reason she's saying, to combat the negative media portrayal of mosques in the UK. And, you know, it worked to a certain extent. It's something that we did, that we initiated. I'd really like to see what kind of initiative she's got in place mm. to actually combat some of these problems, other than just, you know, being, being quite critical, I think, uh, of Muslims. There. I think Islam is being riddled with many Arabic tribal culture and, okay. and Hindu culture and Indian culture. I think if Muslims, they want to have a future in this country, we have to get rid of whatever culture. So get rid of culture, Indian culture, Pakistani culture, Bangladeshi culture, Arab culture, Arab culture, Somali, Somali culture. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we have to What's get rid so of it. What's so bad about culture? You have too much negative about culture, forced marriages, you have the caste system, you have plenty of things. I mean, even in election, some elections, they get decided in Pakistan instead of here. Some mosques, we have some mosques here built in UK, mm. you can't have, have a space for women. Where are they getting this from? And this is, we have to get rid of it. I believe there is one Islam, but societies are different. I think if we are going to have a Muslim community in UK, and that's a separate society, that's a society by itself, we have our own problems here, which are not similar to the problems of India or Saudi Arabia. And we have to seek some kind of solutions in the light of Islam itself. And those solutions, they should be compatible with the way we are living here. And for us to bring like culture from like last century from India and want to implement it here. And that's why the bad image we are giving about Islam is in fact people when they criticize most of the time they are criticizing the culture and most of the time we come out and we just protest against the attacks against culture because we think it's attacks against Islam. I think it is about time now to make a clear line between what is religion and between what is culture. What is religion? We have to practice. What is culture? No compulsion. If someone wants to wear a shalwar kameez or anything, that's up to them. It shouldn't be in any way connected with Islam. Abra, very quickly, have you thought of a group? No, I haven't, but I just think that all the groups should unite and have one strong group. And as Brother Mohammed says, I echo that. That was the debate going on a year ago. As in, less, you know, the culture is holding Islam back in the UK. So if people do want to dress the same, they can still keep elements of their culture, but show you know, a united front, which is an Islamic front rather than an individual culture front. Muhammad Ali and Abra Hussain from the Islam Channel. Jazakallah for coming in. That was Islamophonic. It was presented by me, Riaz Atbat, and produced by my third producer of the series, <laughs> Ian Chambers. Jazakallah for listening, and until next month, stay halal. Walaikum Asalaam. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.